Hi guys, welcome back to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall, and today I have Menno back on the podcast. We get a little bit of an update on how his back is going because he's had an injury there for an extended period of time. And then we dig into some of your questions, which by the way, I always gather over on my Instagram, Revive Stronger over on IG. If you want to get that, it'll be on my story at some point when I have these kind of Q&As with some of these guests. So if you want to get in on that, be sure to be following me and checking my stories out regularly because these happen all the time. So some of the questions we covered today with Menno included, has he ever considered going on steroids? Really, really interesting reply to that. How does he like to peak his clients for the stage? Is there an importance to tracking complete versus incomplete proteins? Lots and lots of great questions. And of course, really great nuanced answers from Menno. And guys, if you do enjoy the podcast, please do remember, subscribe if you are on YouTube or if you're on Spotify or the like be sure to subscribe over there if you can review us over on spotify give us a five out of five come on to youtube give us a nice comment we really appreciate it and share this with anyone you think might be interested but without further ado let's get into the chat Hi guys, welcome back to the revive stronger podcast i'm your host as always steve hall and today i have menno on the podcast again for another chat uh, i don't know what happened to my brain there kind of i hit pause and <laughs> i'm gonna go with it Menno, i just said uh, as we we're talking off air i'd love to hear a kind of injury update i know last time we spoke there was kind of no clear diagnosis or anything like that i don't know if that's imp- i'm hoping it's improved time generally is a great healer so i guess i'll, I'll hear now it's, it's improved a lot not in terms of having a diagnosis but in terms of being pain-free during pretty much everything now except squats and deadlifts I mean, squats and deadlifts are kind of pain-free, but the last time I tried squats, uh, pretty much Im- immediately after, like a few hours, I got like slight pain again. So I was like, okay, taking um, some more time off that. Because after a year of pain right now, I'm just happy to be pain-free um, during most things. And squats and deadlifts can wait a little bit longer. So I'm, I'm pretty happy. Um, it's also a nice experience to train without squats and deadlifts. It r- certainly reduces the the effort of the sessions massively, even when equating for all the volume, which is interesting. Like instead of squats, you have to do like free exercises to kind of make up the volume that squats or deadlifts would do. But even that's easier, I find, than squats or deadlifts. They're really brutal exercises. Do you think one is better than the other or do you think it's kind of equivocal if you kind of auto-regulate it so you've got the equivalent volume and things i mean based on my weight i've been able to maintain muscle mass surprisingly well i would say um only losing a little bit in the glutes and erector spinae i think but also maintaining that much easier than i thought especially because for months i could do essentially nothing for those muscle groups nothing more than the very indirect stimulation that they get from like laterals and the like you know and Based on my weight now, which has also been going on for a few months, I would say that squats and deadlifts, I'm pretty much back to my previous body composition. Maybe a little bit worse, but pretty much uh, the same, I think, at least in terms of like uh, weight, weight, body fat percentage stats. So I would say there's there's no difference from bodybuilding perspective. I don't think you need squats and deadlifts. I'd say the powerlifts in general are pretty... I mean, they're great exercises, in particular the bench press and the squat, deadlift for bodybuilding purposes, I wouldn't say so much, but they're not necessary. And I think a lot of people put too much mental focus on those. I, I mean, it's very common for like my clients to report that they spend basically half the session on the four sets of squats, and then they spend their other half of the session on the other 20 sets of the session. Yeah. That's kind of like, uh, I actually this year basically boiled down. I used to try and put some volume on leg days, like maybe some delts or some arms or something, but I try and almost keep it exclusively to just like basically quad and hamstring kind of compounds and isolations. Otherwise those sessions, even though it's like half the set volume, they take double the time just because it's Mm -hmm. so exhausting to recover from like a single set of, uh, even I'm doing Smith machine squats and even those I'm just like, man, they completely tire me out massively. (laughs) Yeah, for that reason, I also don't put deadlifts and squats on the same day, with very few exceptions. It's just too brutal. I think yeah. the the quality of the workout just goes down down the drain so fast that it's almost always better to put them on separate days. No matter if you have to name your split something different, you know, it's not a neat uh, push pull or whatever it is. Yeah, uh, just put them on different sessions. 
you'll, you'll be glad you did. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and out of interest, with the um, when you're talking about squats, do you have a preferred kind of? I'm thinking it's three bar, like a barbell squat. Mm-hmm. Is it kind of a uh, high bar squat, a low bar squat? Do you have a preference for kind of what you think is more ideal for hypertrophy? Uh, there, I don't think the differences are massive. There's a slight difference in range of motion. So, you know, the traditional saying high bar and then heel lift for quads and then low bar more for glutes. It may, it makes a little bit of sense in terms of range of motion, but whether that's actually going to make a difference, if you look at the actual joint ranges of motion, the exercise looks and feels quite different. It feels very different. It looks a little different, but if you actually measure the joint degrees of range of motion and the torques and the muscle activity, at least based on EMG, the differences are small, very small. It's like you're doing two different variations, like medium versus medium wide grip bench press or something. They're, they're really not big differences. And in fact, in terms of EMG research, it finds no significant differences between even front squats and low bar squats, because it's, it's still the same muscles performing the same functions and they can kind of compensate for each other um, as well. So to the extent that there would be differences in the joint torques, the muscles can kind of uh, compensate. Also in the squats, you know, you can stay a little bit more upright if your quads are strong or be a little bit more hip dominant if your hips are stronger. So I don't think the differences are going to be major. And the range of motion difference is also, yeah, I don't think they're going to be big because it's it's such a small difference in uh, range of motion. And what we see from the research on stretch mediated hypertrophy, it doesn't appear super crucial to really max out, max out on the, the, the passive tension or the stretch. You get kind of, you get the benefit as long as you hit long muscle lengths and there's good tension there. And then it, based on the few studies we have at the moment, it doesn't seem ultra important to really hammer down on the, uh, the stretch position. Like we had one study by Nunez et al from Brazil, I'm guessing, based on the name that they did essentially um, cable versus dumbbell preacher curls and they got similar results and the dumbbell curl really hammers down on the stretch media hypertrophy because you get you know your arms stretched and you yeah. get the peak tension all the way in the stretch position there's essentially no more tension even when you fully lift um, the dumbbell and then the cable provides a more even resistance curve and that seems sufficient at least based yeah. on that one study. And then we have one more study by Werneker, Weimerhausen, Wernerhausen, whatever, um, last year, 2021. And they, it was a crappy study, but they looked at lag presses, either just the bottom, which is an interesting study design, or the full range of motion. And they also got similar results, but both groups essentially get no muscle mass. So it's hard to say if that we can really read much into that because that's what you sometimes have in exercise science. You're comparing zero and zero. So that's responsible for a lot of null findings, I think. No, absolutely. And actually, this is great because it, it kind of leads on to... Actually, no, it doesn't. <laughs> I was thinking <laughs> of a question that I had, though. Well, I, I can ask about it. It wasn't actually one of the ones that came through talking about kind of the, the research that's come out about kind of stretch-mediated hypertrophy. But one of them was actually, what do you think of dumbbell flies? Because he was basically saying people went off them due to the, the kind of lack of tension up in that shortened position and now evidence is showing that kind of stretch mediated hypertrophy is like quite important. You get a really big stretch, I guess, similar to that preacher curl to the, the kind of mm-hmm. cable preacher curl example. So it was like, do, do you think a dumbbell fly is a, a good movement? How does it compare to a cable? What's your kind of thoughts on that? Yeah, I definitely favor them a lot more now than I used to because the research on stretch mediated hypertrophy has quite clearly shown that it's responsible for the majority of the benefits of training full, full range motion. Like we... We didn't really, we weren't really sure why full range motion training was superior. There were some theories. There's like regional hypertrophy. It probably still plays a role. But uh, I mean, we did have the research showing it increases muscle activity and uh, IGF 1 production. But it wasn't really clear mechanistically what, what triggered all of that. And now we do have pretty solid data, I think, that stretch media hypertrophy, or, which is more the, the name for the phenomenon that you get more growth at long muscle lengths. And the two primary explanations for that are likely passive tension, uh, in particular, I think, via the, the titan myofilament, which is essentially spring-loaded during eccentric muscle contraction to long lengths, uh, but also just the passive tension of reaching long muscle lengths to some degree. I think titan is more important than the actual pure stretch. 
And then at least in novice lifters, probably some contribution of muscle lengthening. So the uh, increase in sarcomeres in series, literally making the muscle fascicles longer rather than making the muscle thicker by adding sarcomeres in parallel. So dumbbell flies, in that sense, score very well in terms of stretch media hypertrophy. Yeah, they neglect the top part almost completely. But if we look at the Nunez uh, example, they would be the equivalent of the dumbbell bleacher curl. So they at least, they probably hold their own. Now, I would still favor the cable because again, drawing on the analogy from the Nunez study, like a Bayesian fly, a cable fly, it probably produces equal growth, but you get more equal tension for range of motion. And for a fly, I'd say that's particularly important because the injury risk with a dumbbell fly, I think is a lot higher. Not just a strain on the pecs or something, but also the pecs or the uh, shoulders. Shoulders are in a quite precarious position in the bottom position, especially the combination of full abduction plus full pec stretch is for a lot of people with shoulder injuries and even people just without shoulder injuries, um, problematic. And if you, yeah, if you can get rid of that position, which it can partly do by not abducting as much. So instead of being like a full guillotine, you can slightly tuck the elbows, which many people intuitively don't do, but they do it for presses, but not flies, but actually the same applies if you want to protect the shoulder. But still, yeah, if you can use a cable and slightly reduce that risk while without probably compromising on muscle growth, I'd still generally favor that. Yeah, that, make, that makes a ton of sense. Uh, and it is interesting to think, because I guess, again, intuitively, my mind is set on, okay, so if long muscle lengths seem to be kind of more hypertrophic versus the short, surely kind of biasing the load there and kind of even matching kind of, I guess, strength profiles of the muscles is important. But the literature doesn't seem to be kind of supporting that you need to worry about doing that sort of thing. Yeah, and especially, I think, if you just have some exercises that really hit the stretch position well, it's probably enough. Like you don't have to go overboard and let all exercises um, do that. Another thing is that we don't have great literature on this, but it's quite likely that an exercise like fly extends the recovery time a bit because it can induce more muscle damage. And if it doesn't induce more growth, but it does do more muscle damage, then the stimulus to fatigue ratio might be worse. So even if it does induce like a little bit more growth, you have to weigh that against uh, couldn't you rather spend that those recovery resources on other exercises and thereby get more gains because you can accumulate more total volume? And that's where I think an exercise like hip thrusts, which kind of fall by the wayside based on the stretch media hypertrophy research, they do really well because they don't bang you up as much. So you can accumulate uh, a lot of volume with exercises like hip thrust without getting injured, without um, like extremely long recovery times, et cetera. And I guess a question I would have as a whole with the research that's come out and obviously Milo Wolf released his meta-analysis, has that influenced your programming at all or has it made you uh, make any changes to the way that you might do things? So we have two new systematic reviews, uh, one meta-analysis, one new systematic review. And they, they, I mean, they have similar conclusions. One, the systematic review is a little bit more Conservative, probably. Uh, the meta even said essentially, um, like just the data show in, in the analysis, that the that focusing on the uh, long muscle lengths actually results in more gross muscle growth than full range of motion training. But it's basically only based on the Pedrosa study, which is where the leg extensions and then the bottom outperformed full range of motion. But there are quite some issues with that. They weren't trained to failure. They were, I believe, untrained women at least not well-trained women. And they, it really depends on the leg extension machine because some leg extension machines just have like no resistance in the bottom. And then it's like, yeah, in that study also they added, I think, I'm not as sure of the exact number, I think it was 20 to 50% more weight or something. Like it was a substantial right. amount of extra weight that they could lift by only doing the bottom part. And then it's like, yeah, if your machine's like that, maybe it's better to emphasize the stretch but probably if you have a good machine, you lean back to lengthen the rectus femoris inherently, and you train to failure, which inherently makes you utilize the, or close to failure, makes you utilize the entire range of motion more. I think you're going to be a lot closer in terms of stimulation. So I wouldn't put too much stock into that. And the 
But the studies themselves, when they were published, definitely changed my view on things. The, in particular, the, the, I think the Japanese research group that did those two studies on the, the laterals, showing that seeded laterals like outright outperform lying laterals. Uh, that was, I think, a, a game changer study. And then the Pedrosa study was like, okay, maybe it, I could see people taking this too far based on this result. Um, and then Nunez, I'm not sure if they came after Pedrosa. I think they came shortly after, which kind of put a damper on it, like showing, okay, we don't have to go all in on the, the stretch. At least it's not uh, evidence that we should. So, and then Wern, Wernhauser, Wernicum, whatever, they, um, they were also around that time. So there were a lot of, lot of studies that kind of, um, and I could see people shifting the pendulum a lot based on the original two studies on the leg extensions and the laterals, but then the next studies after that kind of, yeah, put things a little bit more into perspective. You often see that in research where history kind of develops in a pendulum-like fashion where we go from one dogma or one way of thinking, and then we have new research and personal people accept it, but then it's like, when they do accept it, we go all the way to the other side. And then we find out in the end, okay, the truth is kind of in the middle. Yeah. So I think that also um, kind of kind of happened. But yeah, like I said, exercise is like, it, it has meaningfully changed my exercise selection, especially for people with home gyms. Whereas before I would try to avoid exercises like dumbbell flies and dumbbell preacher curls. Um, now I'm like, yeah, if we, if we can do those, actually, probably that's fine. And maybe I even throw them in sometimes for variation. So I'm, I'm definitely utilizing and also paying a lot more attention that I'm making sure that every muscle group is benefiting at least on one exercise and preferably more from stretch media hypertrophy because a lot of programs, they don't. They, they, they take this knowledge, but they don't really apply it. Then for the biceps, for example, they will do something like uh, chin-ups, barbell curls, dumbbell curls. Okay, that seems like a pretty complete, typical, traditional bicep training um, day or program, whatever. But there's no exercise in there that really stretches the biceps well at long lengths. So you would be probably much better off changing that to like Bayesian curl, dumbbell preacher curl, and then our chin-ups are fine as a compound exercise. But chin-ups alone are not going to cut it, probably. Yeah. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I guess maybe with... um at least for me, it made me look at like lateral raises quite a lot with the dumbbells mm-hmm. being kind of no, not no tension, I guess, because you're, uh, as uh, Kasim pointed out to me, that kind of initial movement is kind of, you're, you're fighting inertia at that bottom point. But if you're just static holding it there, it's just gravity down. There's no initial starting tension. Whereas now with a cable, so I've focused a little bit more on kind of cables for my lateral raises. But I think it it's nice that you kind of described, I, I did see the industry in some areas swing to the kind of long muscle lengths and it does seem like it's kind of coming a little bit more back in central uh so that's interesting and it's also good for you to emphasize because i have seen again i guess it comes from this new kind of resurgence of biomechanics became very popular and people are looking at these kind of small degrees of freedom and you were talking about if you're like a little bit more lengthened in this position it's not like it's night and day or it's very marginal gain so i don't know if you're not going out of your way to kind of extend the stretch on every single muscle and i guess there is uh, a point of which where you can be too stretched as well where you can't produce as much force and things like this yeah that's that's very interesting we if you get to passive insufficiency for example you get to a point where passive tension is extremely high but active tension is near zero and that's an area where i think we just we just need more research like i would really like a long-term study to compare true stiff-legged deadlifts versus romanian deadlifts because I'm currently more on the Romanian deadlift fence based on much higher active tension. Uh, and maybe a best is a combination. Like you, you kind of do both. Um, but yeah, it would be interesting to see based on this research that would put um, give more credibility to the stiff-legged deadlifts in the sense of stimulating probably more stretch-mediated hypertrophy. But then again, is it actually more or do you hit the ceiling effect? And well, the, the active tension is certainly going to be in favor of Romanian deadlifts with with the knee being allowed to uh, bend slightly. But yeah, that would be something where we just want to study. And um, I'm going to collaborate on a study that's going to start pretty soon next year where we compare hip thrust versus squats. And that's also going to be extremely interesting, I think, because we have the one Brazilian study which seemed to show that squats are superior to hip thrusts. But then, yeah, that research group turned out to have a lot of 
um, essentially outright frauded data or most likely uh, out frauded data, incredulous to the point of um, uh, most likely being frauded. Um, I'm not sure if that protects me any more legally than the, <laughs> the formulation, but it, it, most people think it's frauded. And um, the, yeah, if, so it depends on, can we trust the data to begin with? Yeah. And yeah, it will help a lot to have independent replication of that because that, that's also going to tell us a lot whether, so whether the EMG researches probably use something better to go by or whether it's really the range of motion and the stretch that we need to bank on. So I think that's, it's a great study because whatever the outcome, we're going to learn from it. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm very interested in that. And that's actually another question I had was where your head was with if this just kind of stretch mediated hypertrophy applies to every muscle group or if you think it's specific because a lot of muscles have been tested through resistance training some have been tested just through like stretching them and they've seen growth that way so i don't know not every muscle has been tested though so i don't know where your head is with it if it if it is something you can kind of apply as like a rule towards every muscle group or not yeah so there's this id which i think traces back to chris beersley because i'm not sure who else really uh extensively wrote on it that some muscle groups don't benefit from stretch media hypertrophy uh, and I have no trouble calling him out because he blocked me and he doesn't want the inputs. So then, yeah, you're inviting it. <laughs> and um, um, it, it's basically based on pure theory. Like he theorized that you have to be on the descending limb of the length tension relationship. I think that that's the theory. Like you have to get weaker essentially, which which kind of makes sense. Like if you are, it will increase passive tension on the muscle. Like if you're you're basically the theory says you're you're going to such lengths that the muscle is becoming weaker. And as a result, there's also more passive tension and less active tension, but more passive tension on the muscle. And that's what's driving the stretch media hypertrophy. But if you look at the research on which muscles we see stretch media hypertrophy in, that includes the biceps. And the biceps is actually strongest in anatomical position at, at your side, which is extra, which is, I think, why it's extra important to uh, train that position, like the stretch position, because there's the highest active and passive tension in the case of the biceps, which is why dumbbell and barbell curls really fail uh, on both ends to optimally stimulate the biceps. And yeah, there, there's really no way to um, to explain that based on that theory. And it's quite consistent because it used to be just a Pinto study, which found uh, only a trend. And it's funny in the meta-analysis, like the systematic review said, like yeah, the Pita, Pinto study was a clear null finding. But then I was like, the effect size was way bigger and the p-value was like 0.9 or something. So it was it was, a, it was a, even a statistically uh, a trend. And it, I think not clear, but definitely evidence of full range of motion being superior to partial range of motion. And then we had the, quite recently, we had the study showing that muscle growth was uh, three times as large when training. I'm not sure if it was isometrics or partial range of motion. I think partial range of motion essentially curls um, at long lengths versus short lengths. And it was like a lot more growth, like um, three times more based on some measures, two times more on other measures. So, you know, one study, you, you can never extrapolate that to saying that in, in everyone's going to be like two to three times more growth. Uh, it's common for single studies to overestimate effect sizes, but clearly it's, it's meaningful. It's not going to be zero. It's not going to be 2%. It's going to be a, a real number of interest. So I don't think it's, I think it will certainly vary per muscle group, but I don't think there are muscle groups that don't benefit at all and other muscle groups that do. Uh, I think it exercise or muscle groups like pecs maybe, but in particular hamstrings and calves, those can probably benefit a lot. Like all the research we have on pure stretch media hypertrophy, as in hypertrophy that's done ex or that's achieved purely by static stretching, uh, we also have a, an explosion of studies in that the last two years. They're pretty much all in the calves and also in untrained individuals. But the calves are really easy to get to passive insufficiency. You can lengthen them so much that the calves cannot produce force. And even it, it goes surprisingly fast. Even if you walk out of the normal gait, so if you're, you're walking, the range of motions during walking, just like the gait cycle, if you go out of that, you very quickly go into passive insufficiency. And you essentially, it's the soleus that's doing most of the work and just rebound from the Achilles tendon and the leg. So those muscles, I think, yeah, you're gonna, you're, you can put a lot of passive tension on those kind of muscle groups, the hamstrings, the calves. So probably 
there's more potential for stretch mediated hypertrophy. But that fact that we see it even in the biceps, which would theoretically not should not show much, uh, or based on Chris's theory at least, should not show much growth. I think it will be applicable to most muscle groups. Yeah. Maybe something like the traps. That's like, well, you know, what's the range of motion you can get in the traps? Do you not see the progress you would like? Are you sick of writing your own programs? Or perhaps you need some accountability in order to stick with the plan? Then it's time to start working with us. We at Revive Stronger offer a truly personalized coaching service. You'll get more than just an email with some macros or random cookie cutter program. With Revive Stronger, you will be the center of our attention. You will receive your own fully individualized training protocol alongside a customized nutritional strategy. We created the coaching around your needs, wants, personal preferences, and your own unique lifestyle. Every single week, we delve into your program in order to make appropriate adjustments so that we get the most out of your time and the best possible outcome. We help both female and male athletes to seriously change their body composition by adding more muscle mass and decreasing fat tissue. No matter if you're a competitive bodybuilder or just want to look better, if you need help with your progress and taking your physique to the next level, our coaching is for you. It's time to make a change, sign up today and let's revive stronger. Yeah, no, I, I that makes a lot of sense that some muscle groups might benefit more than others, but it's probably kind of a holistic thing across the board that stretch mediated hypertrophy applies across muscle groups. And yeah, when you think about there's some muscles, I guess that it's quite similar. The muscles that are at least the hamstrings are going to example, they get sore very easily and damaged quite easily and they can get stretched very easily. Like any hip hinge, mm-hmm. uh, even seated leg curls. If you have a good seated leg curl, you can get your hamstring sore through that. Whereas like I'm thinking like traps, delts, they're quite hard to get in a stretch position. They're mm-hmm. also quite hard to get sore. Even, I mean, lats can sometimes for some people, I think they get kind of sore, but a lot of back kind of pulling movements. I know the lat prayer does stretch the lats pretty damn well, but mm-hmm. a lot of back movements don't get like a huge stretch on the lats. So yeah, it's, it's very interesting stuff anyway. And it, it's great to get your perspective on it. Cause again, it's kind of like the, the new thing in the industry, I think a little bit in terms of like, it's mm-hmm. the, the kind of newest bit of science that's come out that I've seen at least that's been quite interesting and applicable across the board to like programming and things like this. So um, we can get to another question unless you have anything more on that one. Nope, let's uh, no, cool. keep moving. So the next question is, uh, I know I've actually heard you talk about this previously, and I'm not sure if your perspective has changed. I don't, haven't heard you talk about it recently was uh, this idea of training kind of different muscle fiber types. So kind of trying to train a fast switch muscle fiber versus a slow twitch. Can we target different muscle fibers via our programming? Yeah, I've actually come to some sort of uh, revelation quite a while ago, but I don't think I've written about it much. That if you look at the research, research is simply very mixed. If you look at the Russian literature, it's clear, it's very clear, not just in one study, but in multiple studies, that high reps target the type 1 fibers more, low reps target the type 2 fibers more. And then the American literature was like one or two studies found a trend, and then there was basically no finding, no finding, no finding, no difference, no difference, even in studies of very different designs. So then people are like, yeah, okay, I think it's just complete BS, and the Russian literature just doesn't make any sense. Uh, but then we got the study showing with blood flow restriction training, we can actually induce type 1 specific muscle fiber hypertrophy, which is also interesting because blood flow restriction is, you could kind of think, well, it's you're restricting blood flow, so it's more anaerobic. So surely it's the type 2 fibers that grow more because they don't need oxygen. Um, but no, it seems to be still the type 1 fibers that you grow more still. The fact the, the longer duration, longer time on attention and the like seem to and lack of recovery, probably also of the type 2 fibers. And then I was looking at the studies and reading them again, and it dawned on me, what do the Russian studies and blood flow restriction type training have in common? Very limited relaxation. Because the Russian studies all used, no re- they call it like no relaxation training, or that's the English translation closest to the Russian. The, so they're, they're kind of keeping the tension on the muscle and not pausing, whereas the American studies, they typically use normal tempos, which actually in studies... They use quite slow tempos, artificially slow, I would say, like four-second eccentric. You read that on paper, you're like, oh, yeah, it makes sense. And then you do it, try doing a four-second eccentric. You're like, oh, my God, this takes yeah. forever. <laughs> so I think it's the no relaxation part that's making the difference. And that means basically, yeah, high reps can probably stimulate type 1 dominant uh, or preferential muscle growth in the type 1 fibers if you're kind of keeping the tension on the muscle and doing like pump work. 
So that's, and then the question is, is there still some difference between like a normal 30RM and a 5RM? Maybe. Um, I think you'd have to go into the range of like one to three RM, max five RM to, to get type two preferential growth. Um, we, maybe then it's more that the time and attention is too short for the type one fibers rather than that it's better for the type two fibers. So I don't think that's like a winning scenario. But yeah, that, that might be a way we can achieve it. I think the main thing, uh, my main, the other thing I uh, learned about it or my change in my practice is that I quite quickly abandoned the idea of my uh, what I my original articles. I thought based on like Poliquin and Thibodeau. Literally, was my first article actually that I wrote publicly. Um, I was like pretty big on muscle fiber specific hypertrophy. I thought it would be like uh, that was all the rage at the time and the, the theory. Clearly, it like it makes a lot of theoretical sense, uh, but it just doesn't really pan out in the research. And it was like like I said, null finding after null finding. So I quite quickly abandoned the idea that it was like really important. But then we had other findings showing. It does, like your muscle fiber type, if you read, for example, uh, Epstein's The Sports Gene, uh, it's really interesting how top-level coaches and the like saw big differences in the training practices required for the sprinters and the marathon runners. And if they used different methods for that they used for the marathon runners, they used it on the sprinters and they would get injured, they would get hurt, uh, they couldn't recover. And um, so that suggested... There, there is clearly something going on. And then there's other research showing, yeah, muscle fiber type percentage barely influences the how many reps you can do at a given percentage of one RM, but things like capillary density do. And um, some people conclude that, okay, yeah, so muscle fiber typing doesn't matter, but then it doesn't, maybe capillary density is also important. So it's, it's just a different mechanism, but it still means that different rep ranges might have different effects, if not on muscle hypertrophy directly, then on recovery times. We also have a study showing that specifically in the type two fibers or people with more type two fibers, more muscles with more type two fibers, if they did high reps, their recovery time was longer. Um, but if they did low reps, it didn't matter. So that would basically mean that if you're super fast twitch dominant, you're gonna have a hard time which is also kind of what these coaches found. You're going to have a hard time um, doing high rep work because it's going to destroy you. So I think based on these things, it, like my methods basically always been to use percentages rather than, I won't say 8RM, I'll say 80% of 1RM. Okay. And then if somebody can do 12 reps, okay, maybe you have more type 1 fibers, maybe it's because you have more capillaries, maybe you just really hate <laughs> low reps and you like high reps. W whatever the cause I think most literature errs on people getting better strength training adaptations from the training that they are better at, regardless of whether it is, whether they like it more, whether they're genetically suited for it. So I think the methods kind of still make sense, but the rationale has changed a lot. That makes that makes a lot of sense. I think um, when you work with a number of clients, you see it between people. And mm -hmm. it, in some ways is a little bit unfortunate because quite often it's, the people who are very, very jacked and I'm jealous of, and they just respond very well from lower volumes and lower rep ranges, whereas it's the guys who are a bit kind of uh, more ectomorphic, maybe a bit more like myself. Uh, I don't know if I should even use ectomorphic or, <laughs> as a term, mm -hmm. but um, those who are a bit kind of, yeah, they, they find muscle growth a bit more challenging. The kind of higher rep ranges just seem to give them that better kind of, I guess, stimulus to fatigue ratio. And I guess that's your kind of practical take home is kind of mm -hmm. use maybe bias your training to the rep range where you're just feeling like it's working better for you you're not like yes. just mindlessly going through repetitions or it's not just like crushing your joints and like ligaments and things and it, it's feeling well in the muscle yeah and it also i think makes a big difference um i'm not sure if that's physiological or just a matter of the, the increments between the weights but women in my experience have a really hard time progressing often on low rep ranges and i've seen multiple times like in men if you're getting stuck on 15RM, one of the easiest way to get unstuck is to start doing 10RM. Like you'll, it's higher training intensity, which is better for strength development, so you make better gains, at least in strength, not in muscle hypertrophy. But for women, I've actually seen the opposite happen a lot, where they get stuck on 15RM, and you intensify, and they just get more stuck. But then when they get stuck on like 4RM, I increase the rep target, and I'm like, okay, start doing 15RM. And they progress, because... Adding the weight is such a big step. Like if you have women doing lateral raises, for example, and the increment's five pounds, it's impossible. It's, it's an yeah. horrendous jump in weight. 
So, and for many women, even the lowest weight on cable stacks can be problematic to use. If you want to do high rep work on like lateral raises, maybe unilateral face pulls, those kind of exercises, it's really difficult uh, for a lot of women. And then the any increment in weights, which is even 2.5 pounds, five pounds in particular, uh, God forbid it's 10 pounds, then it's, yeah, it's, it's just too hard. And then increasing reps, they do a lot, um, they're a lot uh, better at that. And it might have to do with generally being more type one fiber dominance, uh, quicker recovery and the like. But I think also simply the, the fact of the increments, like adding, you know, 14 to 15 RM is a relatively small percentage. Whereas if you're working with 20 pounds and you're adding um, five pounds, it's a very big percentage. So I think it's just a mostly a practical matter, but might be some physiology behind it as well. Yeah, that the practical thing is is huge, especially on like people who are trying to add load every week to like isolation based movements. It's like often it's a 10, 20% jump. It's like you're mm-hmm. gonna drop so many reps, like you're gonna fall out of the rep range, you'll be in the strength rep range, it'll feel all sorts of wrong. So I, I completely see what you're saying there. And I guess actually as another point, not only might it differ between individuals, but even muscle groups as well. Have you found that with yourself in your own training as well? Like some muscle mm-hmm. groups respond better to certain rep ranges. Yeah, definitely. Or- yeah, we know that muscle groups differ in terms of muscle fiber type composition, presumably also in capillary density um, and all the other factors responsible for however many reps you can do at a given percentage of 1RM, uh, plus differences in range of motion and just overall strength level, like what, what are the weights you're using. So I think it makes sense that it's definitely going to differ per muscle group, what yeah. like the ideal kind of um, practically ideal rep ranges are. Perfect. The, the next question is, is there a step count that might be so high that it can limit muscle growth? And he said, I think mm. this individual is doing 30,000 steps a day. That's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I just actually read an email of a client who said that she has a super high step count, super high activity level. And she also has a standing desk. And then she found out that at the end of her day, actually, she has quite some edema in her feet. So she, the imprints of her uh, stockings and uh, socks, is you can see her, her legs are swollen. I think at that level, it's probably going to tag up some of your recovery resources. So in that sense, yes, I don't think you're going to have an interference effect or anything like that directly. But yeah, if you just do enough volume, it's going to induce muscle damage, cause edema, can limit muscle growth uh, via that mechanism. So I definitely think it's, it's possible and it will probably be mostly specific to the lower body. Whether it's, you know, taking up recovery resources will also affect the upper body, maybe a little bit, but uh, I think it's, it's certainly possible. Yeah, that makes, uh, makes a ton of sense. And the edema is something I've definitely experienced and I've always put it, it's like a stress response at that point. Also, I guess it's pooling mm-hmm. because you're stood a lot of the day, but I think there's also that from the sounds of things, you're thinking there's a stress yeah. response I mean, there too. If you're sitting, it's, you're also it should also be pulling, and if you just yes. gravity, you know, like so. I think it's it's indeed a stress response yeah. mostly. Perfect. Yeah, I guess uh, that's something I used to experience. I, I've got better, I think, prepping. So I haven't experienced as much edema through my contest preps, but that's something mm-hmm. I used to have a real problem with was the edema around the ankles. And I could only put it down to being stressed. I, I thought it maybe was other things, but only seems like it's stress. And I, I've seen a number of people go through that. In fact, um, I'm going to ask this question because I knew if I'm going to send this to Connor because he's just competed. He's a competitor who I follow online and he got this response to the edema and he wanted someone in the know to explain what is exactly going on with the kind of stress response why does what what is cortisol doing to lead to potentially kind of that pitting edema and things like that so i'm going to put it to you Menno, because i think you're actually Mm -hmm. a perfect person to ask so you have two different types of edema one is central edema that's caused by for example cortisol if you're stressed during contest prep cortisol levels are going to be higher on average Uh, if you're sleep deprived it, it also has these effects and it's going to cause centralized edema. So everything is essentially going to swell in the body. And there are certain drugs that cause edema in specific locations, such as anchoedema. And then it pulls more in the, in the eyes, which is what I had during my prep in Brazil, where I got this weird tropical virus or whatever. Oh, wow. Uh, like my eyes were like completely <laughs> swollen shut. And, um, but that, that's not what you normally get with centralized stress response. One thing that's very characteristic of it is that a lot of it's often in the uh, the ankles are a pretty good indication, but also the stomach. You can have a lot of swelling in the stomach. And 
most kind of bloating, which is also edema. Edema is just essentially water retention uh, that you get from eating foods you're intolerant to. You also get that a lot um, in the abdominal region. That's also why I think people that the carnivore diet and those kind of diets, sometimes they, they look successful because people just eliminated foods that they didn't know they were intolerant to. And their stomach looks flatter, drier. Uh, it, it can make a big difference. And then the local type edema from like damage is essentially just water being sucked into the area. And there's also um, at that point, um, some, some, sometimes even blood pulling up, but then the damage is quite severe. Uh, but during training, that, that can actually happen to uh, some extent and should flush out relatively quickly. And then there are the, um, the lymph nodes and the lymph fluid that also can accumulate to some degree. Uh, in like uh, the areas that have local damage, especially after things like 30,000 steps, if you're not accustomed to that, then that could really uh, bang up your feet and um, lower body. And then you probably actually get some of that type of edema as well with inflammation and the like. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I, and it's, it's funny because he was also describing how it comes. And I, I found a similar thing where it wasn't like I could have a refeed and it would pass it was like there was a delayed response i could have the refeed and then maybe it would pass and then it would accumulate again mm-hmm. so it's yeah that kind of the stress of prep is something that's challenging for everyone i think and you just have to do your best with it because it's going to come <laughs> inevitably uh so yeah. yeah we get to the next question and oh this r- related kind of to the topic uh, asked what are your preferred ways to peak clients for shows that could be a whole uh, conversation <laughs> Podcast, in itself yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, my general approach is I'm a pretty, I wouldn't say fan, but I think almost any competitor, if you have time, should trial carb loads. Carb loads are now even evidence-based. We have multiple studies showing they increase uh, also some null findings, but we have pretty good evidence that it actually increases muscle size. And even if we didn't, honestly, you can just see, you can see it on a scale. You can see it easily if someone's carb loaded, just look at the photos. Um, but yeah, it, now it's also like science-based, let me put it that way. Um, and that can make a big difference. It's on the scale, it's maybe one or two kilos if you do it right. Um, sometimes more. That doesn't seem massive, but it looks more like six kilos, I would say, in many people, because you're literally filling up the muscle. You know, that's the difference between a high carb and a low carb diet, that fullness you get on a high carb diet. It, it, it seems more than like the one kilo difference in scale weight. And it's because the muscle is literally full. It's the, the, the look of the muscle, like, you know, about to, about to pop. That, that's, what, that's the look you want. And yeah, that's what you can get with a carb load. So I think that's a very important component. And then the dehydration part, which you, you want to do after and at the last minute, maybe it's something I try, but I'd say at this point, at least 80% of clients, I'm like, yeah, we're going to just stick with high water intake to make sure you don't get bloated. And then that's it. Or maybe like, just make sure we, we stop drinking in the four hours before the show. Um, more to make sure that they don't get bloated rather than to really dehydrate them. And diuretics also very, some people barely respond to them. I'm like diuretic. Um, I can I can take even stuff like diazide, like multi multi tabs. And it's like nothing. Damn. But um, my body's <laughs> like a camel, like I don't yeah. dehydrate. <laughs> so, uh, so you have people like that. And then there are a lot of people who do dehydrate, but then just look flat and uh, they don't get a pump anymore. It's very hard to find that, that sweet spot. And I think it's mostly for enhanced competitors because they get bloated from drugs and stuff that the dehydration is sort of necessary to get rid of some of that bloating, which probably means they weren't using the right drugs. But yeah, uh, at some at a certain level of dosages, it becomes impossible to avoid rather than something that for natural trainees is really net beneficial. And yeah, you the, for, the carb load has the components of like the depletion, which I think still works. It's like the endurance training time trials uh, way to carb load is to go low carb, then do a depletion workout to really deplete. Basically, the, the harder, the lower you're going glycogen stores, the more you can super compensate afterwards. And but you don't want to trial that and you don't want to get too much muscle damage because that will limit the glycogen resynthesis. And then you, you want, basically you want to really optimize the carb load, maybe do some dehydration or just high water intake. Don't mess with potassium and sodium. 
maybe you can do it, you can cut it out. You definitely want to pay attention to it, that you don't, for example, have a competitor that's like, uh, oh yeah, what do I eat on show day? I'm just, I'm gonna go with uh, smoked turkey. It's <laughs> like uh, eat smoked turkey for like two days nonstop. And then your sodium intake is 15 grams per day. Uh, and then you're gonna be super bloated. You're like, what happened? But other than that, yeah, it's it's also risky. It just comes with the, the dehydration part. Low sodium is super hard to get it right. And if you're, especially if you're lean enough, uh, and especially also if you're male, male and lean enough, it's very unlikely to be beneficial um, because you you should hold so little water anyway at that point that th- there's nothing left to to get yeah. rid of. So it's, it's just going to come from your muscles and the pump and everything. Yeah, I think um, that kind of mirrors, I think, what a lot of the, I guess, evidence-based kind of practitioners tend to have uh, with their approach now. I don't know if you've ever looked at... Um, loading fats at all that seemed to be something that came out uh, mm. scott stevenson's kind of uh, i think put that into the paper that kind of came out uh, last year or the year before i don't know if that's ever something you've experimented with yeah i'm I'm not sold on the fat loading um for a few reasons one is this total volume effect is just going to be very small like muscle doesn't have that much fat in it second uh, there's no evidence showing it actually increases muscle size I haven't seen it. If someone goes keto, they dramatically increase their carbs. Like the net effect is clearly super detrimental for muscle size. Like you, you do get super dry, but for muscle size, it's clearly detrimental. And even if you could load the fat to a significant extent and it would be a non-trivial volume, most of the fat is kind of in the muscle and it doesn't attract water. So it, it's not going to give you that muscles about to pop look. It's just going to make the muscle denser not really like popping out. So I, I'm actually very skeptical if you can, if it's literally physically possible to see it from the outside. Uh, and then yeah, the, the practical problem of fat loading, how, how do you, you kind of need a high carb or high calorie intake to do it effectively. And then it kind of messes with the carb load. Whereas I'm like, okay, we know the carb load is super important. Anything that could mess with the carb load is, yeah, I think uh, you're, you're you're aiming for this kind of benefit, but the risk is like this, you know? Yeah. So I'm, I'm not sold on the fat loading at all. I haven't seen any compelling evidence or anecdotal support for it being um, effective. But I'm, I think- I'm open to uh, future research proving me yeah. wrong. Losing weight fast while maintaining muscle mass. Sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? It isn't though. It's reality and we know how to do it. And we will help you achieve this. The Minicup Movement is an eight-week fat loss program to make you lose a huge chunk of fat while maintaining muscle mass at the same time. We will support you from the beginning to the end so that you see the results you would like to and come out of it much stronger. You'll receive a fully automated spreadsheet that is based on your nutritional needs. You can choose between six different male and female training templates. Over 30 videos will guide you through each and every single step of the minicut so that you're getting the most out of your journey and that you always know what to do. But the best thing is that you can start whenever you want. The Minicup movement is open 24-7. So if you want to learn more or you're ready to sign up, hit the link in the description below. So let's revive stronger together. Yeah, the uh, I know the intramuscular triglycerides, like the storage within muscles is small. And then I'm looking at how big people I peak naturals unfortunately we're not the biggest people so Mm -hmm. like the amount that we could get from it is very very trivial I kind of semi tried it my last prep and it was it was fine I was actually surprised I managed to kind of handle the high fat intake fine because I was I mean most people at that point are very low fat intake so then jacking your fat up like two three times the amount it's been Mm -hmm. uh, you have to eat like a lot more than I was used to which was fun and um, I could see some people were like I don't know their digestion could get hit negatively from that I, I was fine but again uh, the tried and tested carb loading for me has been the, been the way that I've liked to go to so um, next question is uh, importance of tracking complete versus incomplete proteins is that something you differentiate or do you just kind of have an overall protein target for a client well most protein intake recommendations are based on the assumption that you get this kind of an assumption that's almost never mentioned anymore but it's actually crucial that you get 50% of your total protein from high quality sources. And if you do that, you're, you're probably fine. It's not difficult if you have, but you do need a high quality source in every meal to get that, like an, an animal protein pretty much, beef, poultry, fish, dairy, eggs. And then almost regardless of the portion size, if you get the total protein okay, you're probably fine. 
If you don't, which is particularly relevant for vegans, it, it can definitely be an issue. Now, most research on vegan, uh, vegan protein sources has been very promising, very, uh, not nearly as bad as the original studies, most showing that even moderate protein intake, sometimes the same protein intakes, actually you get the same protein synthesis response. I'm, I'm still a little bit skeptical of that and to see if it translates into maximum muscle growth. Because one thing with some of the studies is we know, for example, that a full body workout stimulates more muscle protein synthesis than uh, only one muscle group at the whole body level. So the fact that you can maximize protein synthesis in one study with like three sets of leg extensions does not mean that that same protein intake from a vegan source could also max it from a bodybuilder doing a full body workout with optimized everything. Uh, so I'm more uh, typically with my vegan clients, I advise on the side of yeah, just get a lot of protein, which typically means protein supplementation. And then I like 80% pea, 20% rice protein blends a lot, because then you actually get a really nice, complete, um, almost a high quality protein um, package. Other than that, yeah, does it matter? Not so much. I think in practice in particular, the take-home message for most people is get enough protein and make sure you have high quality source in every meal but the exact ratios and everything are not going to be super important. That's really interesting. I, I don't think I've ever heard it stated that the recommendations in protein are 50, assuming 50% 50 mm. high quality and 50% like lower. Cause I think myself included, I think most people just assume it is like saying it's all high quality that that's kind yeah. of what it's suggesting. So the fact that it's 50, 50, that might even change some of my practice. Cause um, when I, for myself as well, when I go massing, I'm on five, 600 grams of carbs. I eat like a few bagels some pasta, like these lower quality proteins really add up. So I tend to be like, okay, I'm going to push my protein intake a little bit higher. Mm -hmm. but, and then I might be like, I'm on like 240 grams of protein and I'm sitting at 190 pounds. Maybe I'm over, overkilling. And I always thought I was probably mm -hmm. slightly overkilling it, but I'd always, I'm kind of like you with being a bit skeptical with the kind of plant-based proteins being as good as maybe yeah, the animal i'm like um uh, i prefer to be on the side of too much protein than too little yeah but i'm probably on the side of still a bit too much if it's if it is that 50 50 that's actually uh, really interesting yeah I, I do that too um especially during ad libitum diets then where i kind of estimate protein and then i kind of ignore the veggies and everything which probably means i'm way overshooting on protein but better to overshoot than to undershoot yeah for sure cool um the next question is what are your preferred ways to track muscle growth over time? Yeah, I think the, the main thing I would say about that is, is that it's super difficult. I think, in fact, I, I kind of have a, an issue, one of my pet peeves with people saying like, yeah, this worked for me. And like, how do you know? Like you, yeah. it's really difficult to know that because most people, for one, they don't even track anything. They just kind of look in the mirror. And I know that if I go to a different apartment and the mirror is better, it looks like I get a lot of muscle. I look really bad. And sometimes I'm also like, um, if I've been somewhere for like three months with a really bad bathroom lighting, and I'm like, I feel kind of bad about my my physique. I'm like, I don't know, is this, is this it? Like, <laughs> and then uh, I come to a different apartment. It's like the lighting is great, and I'm like, oh, nice. <laughs> so just lighting differences make so much more difference than years of muscle growth sometimes so just the fact that you can you know you have a good idea of like what happens in one muscle we know that circum circumference tapes which is as good as it gets usually for at the individual level and they're almost useless like if you look at scientific research there they are you know over the span of years yes they, they will tell you something um in terms of actually guiding program design you need something a lot more proximate than years you want to know across weeks, yeah, preferably weeks, and otherwise at least months, one or two months maybe, if you're getting more muscle, less muscle. And the circumference tape is, is too rough for that. In studies, we, we see clearly that circumference tapes are dramatically worse than MRI or ultrasound measurements. And it also makes sense because just your hydration level, the way you put the, the tape, the, the, how tight the tape is, all of these things massively change the, the circumference reading. So I think the conclusion mainly at the individual level is we cannot infer uh, local muscle growth uh, in any um, reasonable manner, which means we need other measures. And I think strength, at, especially strength at higher rep ranges on exercises that you're not 
making your life mission to do all the time. They are a pretty good measure. And also just your total body composition. Because if you use skin folds or circumference tape for the for your waist, which is a lot more reliable, because the changes in the waist are a lot bigger. Like it, it takes a, a long time to build an inch on your biceps, but it's not that hard to drop an inch on your waist. So if you at a given waist measure, you're now two kilos heavier, you're most likely bigger. And I think sometimes what I call um, I use what I call a witness lift, which is an exercise that you essentially never do but you do it maybe once a year just to see how strong you are. And if, for example, um, maybe a type of curl that you never do or a certain type of weird chin up or maybe Arnold press for overhead pressing. Of course, there's always gonna be transfer from related exercises, but let's assume for the moment we, we have an exercise that really you have zero skill development in. If you're getting stronger on that without training it, that's a strong indication of muscle growth because the only thing that's gonna make you better at stronger at a lift or a moving pattern in general without any kind of neural development will be muscle growth and i think your your sort of general muscle or your general strength level is actually a pretty good correlate of total size so in i think in research research we've become sort of disillusioned with strength as a measure of muscle growth because it's so easy to change strength and muscle mass is a lot harder to shift and the exact correlations can vary a lot if you look at someone's general strength level, like bodybuilders, people often say like bodybuilders are weak. Uh, for one, it's simply not true. But also, secondly, if you see their strength level, if you ask them to do exercises they've never done before, they will, they will be good at them. They will be pretty strong. And the powerlifters are going to have a much bigger discrepancy between it. They're going to excel on the powerlifts, but they're going to be a lot worse on these new type exercises. And then maybe split squats, Arnold press, you know, exercise that most people don't do as much. And that's a good indication of your total like muscle mass level, exercises that you're not really doing and see how strong you get on those. Now, more proximally, if you're getting strong, if you're adding like more than 20% on your 15 RM of an exercise, you're most likely bigger. So I think it's strength is actually in practice often a better indication than trying to really directly measure uh, regional muscle mass. Yeah, I think that makes, that makes tons of sense. And I, I really appreciate your comments on like, this worked for me and they're again i don't know they're comparing a photo under completely different circumstances and it's just like right that's completely like null and void and it's actually interesting i've never heard anyone talk about using proxies of exercises you're not skilled at because the skill component is the issue but if you're not mm -hmm. skilled at it you're never skilled at it so exactly. if you're, you're not doing it uh, kind of for months and months or what have you uh, i've always thought about maybe like movements that are more isolation based being helpful because you're not likely to get super skilled at them but even there you like you said the neural component can kind of play into it you can just get really efficient at that movement so that makes that makes a ton of sense um i have one final i don't know if this is a quick question for you um ever considered going on steroids this isn't my question this also mm -hmm. came in but i don't think you've ever been asked or at least i've not seen you kind of yeah uh, cover I, your uh, thoughts on it definitely i think everybody should kind of consider it um like very serious strength trainees at least and for me it would be something may maybe that i do once i hit like 40s 50s and my natural levels are going to decline anyway i'm going to go on trt and at that time if you're going to go on trt maybe but Actually, I used to be pretty um, sure that I would, but I think for me, the main downside would be the lifelong effect of from that moment on, everything will be worse. <laughs> and be peaking, like knowing this is pretty much it, is one thing, but then having the look and being on stage and um, knowing how you look, not just huge, but also ripped, so you're gonna look dramatically better than you're ever gonna look again for the rest of your life, plus potential health effects at that age also worse um big big maybe but maybe i can't resist <laughs> so is that you're considering so is trt something you're still considering and it's like whether you go further than just that yeah i mean i'm definitely going on trt as soon as yeah. my levels start dropping it's trt uh, for the win but th then when i go on trt i'm like okay might as well at this point yeah. um and one one way to do it would potentially be to like if, if this is sort of your natural testosterone level and with TRT, I'm probably going to make it like here. Like if I'm going to go on TRT, I'm going to go towards the upper range, you know? Um, and then 
if you're if you know that you're going to be higher in that level so you also you especially in your 40s you should end up at age 42 with more muscle mass than at age 38 so if you're going to have that increase maybe you can pair that with a show and okay yeah there's this one moment where you have to really pay attention not to um like in that case i would actually like not look at myself during the prep and i just kind of go by the indicators treat myself as a client and be like okay this is like uh this looks like just look at myself as a judge as if i'm in an alien body and then afterwards kind of um forget i ever had that body um but just do it for the experience and then on trt i should be still end up bigger so i should still be happy with the change that would be one way to do it but i think people on the biggest the, the biggest danger of steroid use that i think is also one of the least um discussed is what what your plan is for the future so and that's also always what i ask my clients okay we can do it we can the medical risks and the like especially a single cycle really they're not that big if you know what you're doing and um you have high quality gear and all these things like i can i can help clients do uh, a reasonably medically responsible cycle of course it's always risk uh, and i really am not worried about that having like lifelong impacts or anything what I am worried about is if you get a natural trainee to their 90 max at that point, they're already at the stage and if they haven't had the journey where the rest of their life they're just going to maintain and they're not ready for it. And I see time and time again, when people don't have that clear plan, they're going to end up cycling and they don't have a clear plan still. And they're just cycling their entire life, actually exposing themselves to lots of steroids over the course of their whole life and lots of side effects and everything. And constant, never being satisfied with their body because they always have these, mm. they're constantly have these switches and they're not maintaining it either. And then if you are going to go beyond your 90 max, then by definition, you're going to lose the vast majority of that when you come back to normal levels. Uh, even worse, if you didn't do it properly, your normal levels are now lower, uh, which also why a lot of uh, people end up on TRT. Then, yeah, you're, you're going to spend the, your entire life looking worse than you did before. And is that really worth it? Because if you look at happiness literature, these things are the worst. When you have these peak moments in your life that cast a shadow on everything else you do, it's most happiness literature finds that it's much more important to be content with the little things and the things that are like your daily life, rather than have like these amazing peak experiences that, like I said, cast a shadow over everything else yeah. in your life. And then that moment of glory, you're going to be one of those guys that's like, you know, back in the days. Yes, yeah, yeah. exactly. And I don't want to be that guy. <laughs> <laughs> that's very interesting yeah i've always i don't know i look at some of these masters natural competitors and i'm like oh maybe that'll be me but then i have always said i, I probably would go down the trt route as well and it's like oh maybe i didn't even think about com competing then as an enhanced like in, in the untested arena so i think it's perfectly viable to uh oh, untested yeah that's another thing um but on trt you can definitely still compete um because as long as your levels are in a normal range you're essentially natural. And if you get your levels back to, like if you you had this level and for whatever reason, you don't have that anymore. And now you go on TRT and this is your level again, then you are essentially natural for in terms of muscular potential. Because it doesn't matter if you get this testosterone from a needle or um, your gonads, it's testosterone, it's the same. It does the same thing. Your body doesn't care what it comes from. Now on TRT, I think you, you have more leeway. You can set it where you want it. But yeah, even if you set it at the top of the range, you could make the arguments, you know, you could have been blessed with great genetics and you would have been there naturally. So is that worse? Um, well, leave that up for debate, but uh, you can definitely still compete. And it's also like technically legal because the tests, they just care about the total level, rightfully so, because that's what determines whether you have an unfair advantage. I guess it depends on some federations. I, I don't know, kind of, a it's kind of like, yeah, what's natural is defined by the federation a lot of the time. So mm -hmm. it's kind of challenging. Um, but I'm cognizant of the time. We've come to an hour now. I do want to give some time because I know you've got a few things uh, coming up. I know one of them, I actually just saw it. You're working on a book, a new book, um, the Bayesian book, uh, which sounds really interesting, actually. So I don't know if you want to speak to that a little bit. Uh, I won't speak on it too much because it's very long way off. It's going to be, okay. uh, yeah, yeah. I think at least at least two years. Uh, I'm quite ambitious in terms of what topics I want to cover. Uh, and I haven't kept as many notes as I did for the previous book, which has been like 10 years of note-taking and then putting it into a book. In this book, I there are a lot of things I studied in life, but I never kept notes on because I didn't know I was going to do anything professionally with it. Uh, like investing you know, how to use money, those kind of things. Uh, I studied them because I want to know how to do it, but I never kept notes. So yeah, 
uh, what, what's, how you should select your apartment. Those things, those are going to be in the book. It's going to be like a manual for evidence-based living. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm excited about that, but I don't want people to get excited yeah. about it because <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be a long way off. And I have so many things on my plate right now. Um, so I actually have to yeah, see how I'm going to fit yeah. that in. That sounds really interesting. Evidence-based living, I like that. Um, I think probably a lot of the listeners like to apply what they've learned in terms of evidence-based, like bodybuilding, health and fitness to other areas of their life too. I find myself doing it all the time, so it's, that sounds really interesting. But uh, yeah, you'll keep it under wraps for a while. But you do also have, I believe, you talked to me kind of via email, you've got the L a London seminar coming up. or not, It's not your seminar specifically, mm -hmm. but you're going to be in London next year at some point. I, yeah, I half March or so, Perform, perform X. It's going to take place in London and I'll be speaking there. So that's nice. And I think for your followers, the main new thing is I'm on YouTube. So ah. um, I've gotten into videos and mo mostly shorts and like also for other okay. social media, but I'm also be also be posting some longer form content uh, there. Very cool. Yeah, I'd seen the reels come up, but I didn't realize you're moving over to YouTube. But uh, yeah, YouTube's good because people are ready for at least like 10 minute videos, sometimes 20, maybe a whole podcast at times. So that's, that's super exciting. Um, yeah. So thank you very much, Menno, for tuning in. I'll make sure I have to get that YouTube link off you and I'll link that all in the description box below. And uh, thank you guys for tuning in. We'll catch you next Thanks time. As always. So I'm Steve Hall, founder of Revive Stronger and a coach of Revive Stronger. My name is Pascal Flor. I'm the co-owner of Revive Stronger and also a coach, of course. Revive Stronger has probably been going solidly for three years, probably roughly about three years. Revive Stronger, to me, it is becoming kind of my child, my foster child. It's the gathering and getting together of like-minded people. We've been expanding the coaching team, which is helping us help more people. Uh, but each coach can only help a certain number of people. Right now, it's all over the place. We have YouTube, we have Facebook, we have Instagram, but there isn't that community aspect behind that. And so the next step for us is developing a membership site. So basically, we want to create a family and a community that is then benefiting from another. A really cool community for people within our little niche is going to be a website. They will get early access to our podcast. You can access us, ask us questions, the community aspect. We have a forum there. You can ask questions, but also you can, you can lock your journey. There's also going to be courses on there, courses, presentations on different topics. Discount of past seminar footage. We will log our journey as well. We'll start vlogging. We're going to have documentaries, our entire athletic journey. Furthermore, they get access to an exercise video library. The exercises that we love for hypertrophy and maximizing hypertrophy, we're going to go through those in depth, telling you how to execute them. We kept them concise and also mobile friendly so that you can watch them in between your sets. I'm super excited to grow this community. The amount of value that we're going to be delivering is huge. And I'd love you to be part of it. You will get so much out of that. I'll see you inside.